As we, uh, as we open up the scripture, I invite you to go to, to Psalm 25 as we continue to, to work our way through the Psalms. And as we do, we're, we've, we're entering, we're not quite there yet, but uh, Psalm 26, 27, 28 all deal with, uh, with the presence of God, the, the beauty that there is in His tabernacle. But as we, uh, as we come to Psalm 25, as we lead toward that point, and we work our way through. David is going to work his way through a series of emotions in Psalm 25. Because <clears throat> David's desire, um, well, David's songwriting and David's worship is real. And so you're going to see him ask for forgiveness. You're going to see him plead for deliverance. You're going to see him praise God for God being with him and helping him through. And then as he gets to the end, you're going to see him ask for forgiveness again. Because that's just a real part of life. That's just real. David is going to, is called, already had been given this title long before the Psalter had put the Psalms together, a man after God's own heart. And sometimes we work our way through Scripture where we face a word. We, we saw it in Job when we went through Job, and we'll see it uh, tonight as we go through Psalms. And that word's integrity. And sometimes the challenge for us when we wanted to understand that phrase and what that means when David or Job said, I walk in my integrity. And we, we want to understand that concept. That the Hebrew word for which the translators choose the word integrity is uh, the word wholehearted. In other words, I'm all in. And that's the word integrity. When Job says, I walked in my integrity, it never meant he was perfect. That he never failed or he never did anything wrong. It meant I'm all in. My whole heart is following the Lord. My whole heart is here. My, it's not someplace else. And we know that God agrees with both those guys. Because in the beginning of Job, it was God who said, Job is a man of integrity. It was God who said, First Kings chapter 4, that David was a man who followed the Lord with his whole heart. So that's the concept, that's the phrase. And so I think the evidence behind it and the, the reality of what does that look like, uh, Psalm 25. Well, we're looking at the, the first book of the Psalms, and as we work our way through about the first 70, they're going to be all attributed to David. Different times of David's life, different things that he's been going through and struggles that he's been having. But all along the way, uh, David's real about his struggle. So a lot of times when folks will come and they'll, they want to talk to me, uh, they, they, there's a problem, they're going through a struggle or an issue or they're struggling with their relationship to the Lord, a lot of times I will encourage them to write a psalm. Because kind of the, the pattern of the psalm, uh, especially when we come to psalms of lament, is first David lays out his problems. Lord, where are you? What's going on? I have my enemies are all around me. All these things are happening. He lays all that out. But then you'll notice there's a point in the psalm where David stops and puts his eyes on the Lord. And then he describes the Lord. And the goodness of God and the glory of God and the, and the ways God had been there for him before. So first he lays out his lament, his hurt, his heartache in the beginning of the psalms. Then he points his eyes toward the Lord and he and it's like he's taken, here's my problem, here's the Lord. And, and once he puts them side by side, he comes to a conclusion. God's going to get me through this. 
And that's an important exercise for us to do in our lives, especially if we're struggling. Because sometimes we, even though that problem's not so big, it gets in, in between our view of the Lord in our life. And now it's so close to my face, all I can see is this problem. But if we can gain perspective, and that's a great exercise for gaining perspective. And I think that's something that David practices as he lays out the Psalms for us. And as he lays out the this <clears throat> ancient worship book that we're reading through, that were all things the people sung in worship. That was all part of their calling on the name of the Lord. So as we look at Psalm 25, again, uh, a Psalm of David. Now what we're not going to see in the English... Psalm 25 is an acrostic psalm, which means each thought, each verse is going to start with the next letter to the alphabet. And remember, when we look at Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry never rhymes words. Hebrew poetry rhymes thoughts. So that's the concept as the, as the poet works his way through. This is what they call a, a incomplete acrostic. Because it doesn't contain every single letter in the alphabet. But it works its way through uh, the alphabet as the thoughts are laid out for us. So he begins, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The idea of lifting up my soul is an idea of, of I'm, I'm lifting up my soul in worship, in a statement of trust or faith in you. So I lift myself up. Oh my God, I trust in you. So let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph over me. Sound familiar? What sounds familiar to me? I used to sing this. Let me not be afraid, let not my enemies triumph over me. You guys don't know that song? Sorry, I'll do it for you sometime. That was not doing it justice, by the way. But as he as he's lifting up his concept of worship, and he tells the Lord, and you I trust, immediately you see the concept of his fearfulness come out. Let me not be ashamed. The word ashamed really, uh, I don't know if it, when we translate uh, languages, you know, everything doesn't go across. You guys heard that before, right? You ever had a friend who spoke Spanish that wanted to tell you a joke, but he says, you know, it's not really funny in English, but in Spanish it's funny? Because the thought doesn't come across. Well, the word here for ashamed uh, also means disappointed. So he's telling the Lord, man, Lord, I'm worshiping you and I trust you and I believe you. Don't let me be disappointed. The idea is, what if the enemies prevail? Does that ever happen in real life? If we follow God, does the enemy ever prevail? I'm going to make you read the Bible if you tell me no. Yeah, the enemy prevails. You guys heard of a, a little church called Smyrna? It's in the book of Revelation. Smyrna comes from the root word myrrh. It means to crush. It is a picture uh, historically and prophetically of the persecuted church. We've all heard of that, right? So, sometimes when we follow God... But to suffer for righteousness sake is far better than to suffer for our own sinfulness, right? So the Lord lays that out. But he told Smyrna, he says, I know you guys are going through it. You're going through a really hard time. And here's my, my word of encouragement to you. This is Jesus talking to the church of Smyrna. Be faithful to death. 
And I'll give you the crown of life. Sometimes the road we're called to walk means the enemies for a time prevail. Do they prevail forever? No, it's impossible. How can the enemy prevail forever? The worst they can do, according to Paul, the worst they can do is take my life. And when they do that, what happens to me? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Is that the big bummer? Oh, man, i got to be with Jesus now forever. I'm never going to cry again. Never going to mourn. Sometimes because we're here and we can't really understand what that means, and we worry about the things we're missing, whatever we lose from earth, we gain so much more than that with Jesus that it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We find ourselves with Jesus Christ. But David here is honest. I think we do a, a travesty to people when we tell them things like, look, you give your life to Jesus Christ and your life is all going to make sense and everything's going to work out. But your life didn't make sense or work out before. Now you're going to have hope. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everything in your life is going to line up. So David's honest with it. Lord, I trust you. I believe you. I worship you. Let me not be disappointed. Let let me achieve victory over my enemies. Who's his enemies? What I love about the Psalms is David never names his enemies. That's important because who's your enemy? The Bible says we do not wrestle with Flesh and blood. So who's our enemy? Principalities, powers, spirits in the darkness, right? Rulers of the darkness of this age. There is a spiritual battle going on. And those are our enemies. Sometimes we get so focused on that person who hurts us or offends us or bothers us. And we think, oh, that guy's my enemy. But he's not my enemy. The enemy, we have a real enemy, right? The Bible tells us he's walking about... Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. devour, right? So he's, he's, we have a real legitimate enemy. So when he says, don't let my enemies triumph over me, don't let the devil win, don't let the devil beat me. Did the, did the devil beat Job? Was Job's life easy? Those are not the same thing, are they? Is Job ultimately disappointed? He goes through, his life doesn't maybe measure up, he doesn't understand, he cries out to God, Lord, I don't get what's going on, I don't understand all this, but what did he say? He said, but I'm walking in my integrity. My whole heart is after you, no matter what. That is what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. You can't follow Jesus with half a heart. You can't follow him with a quarter of your heart, a little slice of your heart, a little piece of your life. When the disciples followed Jesus, what does it say right after? When Jesus said, follow me, what's the next phrase? Every one of them, every one of the disciples said the same thing. So they left all and followed him. Peter left a boat and a pile of fish, the biggest catch he ever had. Didn't he? Jesus said, Peter, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
So the Bible says Peter left it all. So did his brother, Andrew. So did James and John. They followed him. What's the concept? They follow him in their integrity. With what? Their whole heart. What if at the end of the three years of following Jesus, uh, he's not king and everything didn't end up like he thought it was going to? In fact, everything ended up on a cross. Were they still all in? Yeah. They're still all in. And that's the beauty of life on earth. Because life here on earth is going to show you, it's going to give you evidence that I'm all in or I'm not. And once I face that, once I face that reality, I'm all in or I'm not, now it's on me what I'm going to do about it. Agreed? I, I can make the choice. I can say, you know what, I'm really, I'm just really not all in. Lord, forgive me, I want to be all in. Does God answer that? He did for David. Let me not be disappointed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So what's his point? He said, the ones who follow you, Lord, the ones who follow you, let them not be ashamed. But the ones who do the opposite of that, who deal treacherously, then let them be ashamed. People read this and they think, oh yeah, you know, let them, let them dirty rotten sinners, let all the bad stuff happen to them. You, you get why that's loving? Because if it don't happen and they don't ever wander and they don't ever ponder and they don't ever look to the Lord, then they will not ever be saved. The point behind the wages of sin being death is it should lead men to Jesus. And if it does, then they won't be disappointed either. Paul said, I won't be disappointed when I see him. There's nothing else in heaven I want but him. Even if nothing else in my life ever were, if I don't ever get that job, I don't marry that girl, or I don't, I don't marry that guy, if, if everything doesn't come together, if all I can ever have at the end in heaven is Jesus, is that enough for you? Because if it's not, that's not a whole heart. I'm okay at going to Jesus as long as blank is there. My kids, my friends, my family. I just want Jesus. And if that's real, and we believe what we believe is really real, then your friends and family will be there because you won't just be sitting on the couch watching TV. You'll be seeking the Lord and responding to the Holy Spirit and you'll be ministering. Or you'll be praying Endlessly that God brings someone who can connect until it happens. If it's real, if it's real, there's more. Where we will be walking in our integrity wholeheartedly like David did. Look what he asked for in verse 4. He calls out for instruction. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Show me your ways. Teach me your path. Man, I wanna, I wanna go and be and walk where you're asking me to go, be, or walk. That's why Saeed is in prison. Right now. 
Because he said, God's path is for me to go. God's path led him to prison. And prayerfully, one day, God's path will lead him home. But there's no guarantee of that. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Show me how you want me to walk. Show me how you want me to talk. Show me how you want me to live. That that's his motivation. That's his worship. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Lead me in... Today, nobody cares about truth. Nobody cares about truth. I get busted on the chops all the time because I say something's not true. And, and people tell me, Jackie, why are you bashing other religions? Because it's not true. What, when did that become hateful? What, when, if I said, hey, bro, that, that, that food you're eating that, that you think is so good, that's rat poison, man. You shouldn't eat that. That's, that's, why are you judging? Why are you being hateful? Hateful, knock yourself out, eat all the rat poison you want. But I don't think that's hateful. I think that's loving. People today don't care about truth. In, in school and in education, they teach us that truth is... Yeah, I wish it was more relevant. They, they teach us the idea that you can have your own truth and I can have my own truth and they can have their own truth. It never worked in school when I was getting to college, but somehow after that it, it started to work. Truth cannot be absolute, is what they say. Truth is relative. If you're growing up in the Bronx and somebody else grew up in Palm Springs, their truth is different. Bunk, their truth is different. Maybe how you feel about truth is different. And how you see your world is different. But truth didn't change. Truth is truth. People get offended about the truth. The truth. (laughs) 6,000 years of writing. That don't blow your mind. Do you know that you can go to Israel today and look at what they call Abraham's gate, which dates back to 1400 B.C. And you can read about it because that's the gate Abraham walked through when he was rescuing his nephew Lot. You remember the story? Lot got captured by the five kings. Abraham took his 300 men and he went after him. You can go look at the gate. Not one like it. You can see it from 1400 BC. In, in Romans chapter 16, Paul flippantly mentions a guy named Erastus. He says, you know, Erastus, he's the, he's the city planner of Corinth. Do you know if you go to Corinth today, 
You can look at the pavement stone in the middle of the street that says this street was paved by Erastus, the city planner, with his own money. But you know, this book, does, doesn't, it, it has some truth in it, but it's not the truth. Are you kidding me? The insignificant parts you can go look at. You can see. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the names it talks about are real. For years they used to say, the Bible's full of fables. It talks about Pilate, and we don't have no proof of Pilate. You guys know what happened, right? They found this big chunk of stone with Pilate's name written all over it. They don't make that claim anymore. Oh, God, I guess Pilate was real. Because people don't care about truth. But David, when he's calling on the Lord, he says, Lord, you show me your ways. Lead me on your path. Lead me in your truth. If you know what's, what God is asking you to do, and there are a lot of things in here pretty plain, right? Some things we can argue about, but some things are pretty plain. Aren't they plain? So if you know what God says is true, the next question is, are you doing it? Just the plain parts. I'm not asking for the crazy ones. Just the plain ones. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Who is my neighbor? Oh my gosh, Jesus has a story about that. He says this crazy Samaritan found this dude all beat up and hammered. Who was the Samaritan to the Jewish people? Hero? Villain. Oh. Who's my neighbor? According to Jesus, all your neighbor. Loving your neighbor? Jesus said, when you saw me naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When, Lord, did we do that? What did he say? When you done it unto the least of these, my brethren. We can argue about that all day, but what's the plain meaning? What's the plain meaning? When you do it unto the least of these, my brethren. What's that mean? Is he only talking about Jews? Are you sure? You've done it unto me. David says, man... I'm walking in your truth. You lead me, I'm going to follow. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Does God's word teach us today? God's word tells us today, does it teach us? This is how James said that. Let me be not only a hearer of the word, but a doer also. A doer also. Why? Why? He tells us why. Right there at the end of verse 5. <laughs> I keep going. For you, this is the why, for you are the God of my salvation. So on you I wait all day. <laughs> you guys know that this word wait is a action word? We think of wait as a non-action word. What do you mean wait's an action word? Oh, um... You guys all are familiar with the term waiter, right? Or waitress. What do they do? They wait on you. 
Same phrase. He says, man, I want to follow your truth and I want to know your ways and I want to know your path because you're the God of my salvation. You saved me and I wait on you. But sometimes we flip that around. And we say, Lord, you're supposed to wait on me. We got it backwards. We're, we, we got it twisted. I, I wait on you. And in verse 6 of chapter 25, he says, man, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. You know why he says that? He's going to ask for forgiveness in a minute. Why does he say that? Because the love of God is eternal. It lasts forever. So he says to the Lord, Lord, you focus on your eternal qualities, the qualities of your love and your grace and your mercy, and not on the temporary issues of my sin. He tells us, he says, for your love, your tender mercy and loving kindness, the, the Hebrew, it's just one word in Hebrew, chesed. Remember, it's, a, it's like the equivalent to the word agapeo in, in English, or I mean in Greek, the, the self-sacrificing love of God, the, 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 the word that, that Paul invented to describe the love of God. He says, your tender mercy and loving kindness, they're eternal. They're from of old. <clears throat> Do not remember the sins of my youth. When I was a kid, I, I, I thought as a child, and I acted as a child. But the idea is that then I became a man. And when I became a man, what did I do? I put away childish things. That, that our sin struggles in our life should be temporary, not eternal. Doesn't mean we reach a point where we don't struggle, but we should be moving forward, right? When I was a kid, I struggled with certain sins. But eventually, following the Lord, asking Him to lead me in His path, show me His ways, teach me His truth, and me being willing to learn, be not just a hearer only, but a doer also, and applying the Word of God that God gives me, then I progress. Now today I have sinned, still I have not found sinful perfection, but I progressed. I'm not the child. When Paul writes to the guys who are still back here stuck when they were a child, he says, what are you guys doing? By now you should be eating meat. But you're still drinking milk. The writer of Hebrews tells us the danger, the perils of not progressing. You may drift away. Turn your back on the truth and walk away. Is that a reality? Do we see that? We, we want to be, we want to follow that wholeheartedness of David. Man, I'm following him. I want to follow in his truth. I want God to remember his love and his kindness and not my temporary sins or my transgressions. But according to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. According to your mercy, according to your desire, is it God's desire to forgive sin? Oh, come on. Man, he wants to forgive. What's he require? Confession. A repentance. That's it. We get hung up on it. Well then, 
I got to start taking my own sin under control. You guys remember that paralytic that came to Jesus? Right? That his friends, it's in Mark chapter 1, but we're not going to get there this Sunday. But he, the, they're in Peter's, uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house, which by the way is a problem for some people's theology because that means Peter's married. You can't have a mother-in-law without a wife. But anyway, he's in there and, and he's, they're ministering and, and he's healing people or bringing demon-possessed people and sick people and these guys can't get to Jesus so they cut a hole in the roof. Right? You guys remember the story, right? And they lowered a dude down. He's paralyzed. But Jesus does something different to this guy than he did for anybody else. What did he say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Hey, Lord, that's great, but I can't walk. Which is more important? And you might want to gut check yourself. What's, mo- what's most important? So, the Pharisee standing by goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus did not argue with him. Yep, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. So you know... That the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He looked to the young man and said, rise up and walk. Which is easier, Jesus said. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? If I say your sins are forgiven, they're no, uh, you can't see that. If I say rise up and walk, you'll know pretty quick whether or not I have the power to heal. Right? So he... He looks over and he says, man, so you know I have the power to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. And the paralyzed man gets up. Does God want to forgive sins? That paralyzed man confess any sins? Huh. Jesus just reached out to him and said, I want to forgive your sins. I want to forgive your sins. A woman caught in the act of adultery. Did Jesus want to forgive her sins? Well, you have a bunch of commands about what she needed to do to make it right. You know, what you need to do is go back to your first husband. I don't know who he was. <laughs> All he said to her was, Woman, where are your accusers? Where were they? They all left. Why did they leave? They left from the oldest to the youngest. I'll come because the older ones had enough wisdom to know, yeah, I'm a guilty man. The Bible says Jesus stooped down on the ground and he, the Greek word is graphe. It says he, he wrote in the dirt. Graphe means he wrote legibly. Something that could be read. We don't know what it was. We just know he wrote something legible. And from the oldest to the youngest, they bailed. Who was left with this woman? Yeah, Almighty God. What's his desire? To forgive. Do you understand how powerful that is? That God is saying to the entire universe, Look, my desire is not to judge you. 
But if you make me, I will. Jesus said, I did not come to the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. What did he come for? To save it. To forgive. So we can experience forgiveness through the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the, and the, no man comes to the Father except how? Through me. I know, sir, that's so vital. He's saying, look, God wants to forgive. So remember your loving kindness and your grace and your mercy when you look at me. Does God do that? Absolutely. Is he wanting to forgive you? Yes, he is. Does he want you and I to confess? Yeah, he does. Does he want you and I to repent? Yeah, that brings us back to integrity. Wholehearted following Christ. I can only go in one direction when that's happening. If I am wholeheartedly following Christ, I can only go in one direction. I can only go toward Him. Well, he goes on and says, he starts to speak about God's faithfulness. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He teaches sinners in the way. He teaches us how to live our lives, how to walk. The humble, He guides in justice. And the humble, He teaches His way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep His commandment and His testimonies. Now, let's not walk in error. Here's usually what people do. They say, okay, so so God does all these things for the people who keep His commandments. The word keep there is a word keep in the sense of Treasure or value. So before we ask whether or not you perfectly perform the lifestyle Christ has for you, answer the question, do you treasure the life that Christ wants you to live? Because a lot of people don't treasure that. You know, Lord, I really wish you'd break into the 21st century. I really wish you'd make all these things okay. What's the big deal? I mean, nowadays, nobody gets married. Well, nowadays, it's really no big deal. You know, the, the way you find your mate is you just sleep with them. And, and, and when you find one that you, you can sleep with and you both enjoy it, that should be the one you marry. That's not God's way. Do you keep his commandments. Do you take them and hold them right here? It's kind of loud. That's my treasure. Or do you despise them? Oh, I don't want that. Because that's what that word lays out for us. To all those who keep His commandments. Not saying all the people who walk perfectly, sinlessly. Saying to those who, who love the Lord with their whole heart. Who say when they pick up His word, man, this is the life I want to live. I, I, don't, I, don't, I fall short. But doesn't Paul talk about that? Yeah, we all fall short of the lifestyle we want to live. But that's what we're aiming for. If that's not what I'm aiming for, I'm just wandering over here. All those promises he just went over, you're not going to experience those. You're not keeping his word. 
It's not a treasure. It's not a value. What you value, you praise. What you value, you glorify. All the paths of the Lord is mercy and truth. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. When he gets to the end, what is it that David says? The man who follows God wholeheartedly, forgive my sin. You want to forgive, and you want to give grace, and, and you do it, and you'll guide, and you'll lead, and you'll direct everyone who loves your word and loves you. So forgive my sin. That's his heart. That's the attitude. That's the, the direction that he lays out for us. Verse 12, he says, so who's the man that fears the Lord? Who's the, who's the, people trip on that. The, the idea, we want to sugarcoat fear so much we're afraid to say what it is. The words in, in Hebrew, Greek, uh, and English, they all mean the same thing. To be afraid. You know, when you was a kid and you were afraid of a whooping dad was going to give, how that motivated you to walk, right? Same word. We want to, we want to tenderize a little bit. We want to say reverence. And it does mean reverence. Reverence means the same thing. It just takes out uh, 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 some of the harshness. We fear the Lord. If we believe what we believe is really real, if you really believe that the God you serve created the universe with a voice, that He holds your life in your, in, in your hands, that He is sovereign over the things that are going on on the earth, and that He has a, a plan and a purpose and a direction for your life, then you will fear the Lord. There's something to fear. How did Paul say it? Paul said, man, don't waste your time fearing those dudes who can kill you. What are you afraid of them for? Fear the one who, when you stand before him, has the power to cast you into hell. We're so afraid to scare. We don't want to scare nobody. I don't know. I want to scare you. I just want to tell you the truth. If I fear the Lord... There are some places I just am not going to go. Some things I'm just not going to do. But our emphasis in the past 20 years has been on uh, the the love and friendship of God, which is true. I don't want to overemphasize one or the other because both lead me into error. If I believe what I believe is really real, there's some things I don't do. In some places I just don't go. Because I fear God. And He asked me not to go to those places. And I don't want to be in those places where God tells me not to go. Or doing those things God tells me not to do. So we, we want to live a life of the fear of God. And the fear of God always throughout Scripture involves obedience and trust. So the man who fears the Lord is him. Him, the man who fears the Lord, uh, shall he teach in the way he chooses. So God will guide us. God will lead us when we fear him. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. That means we can expect God's safety and protection. And his descendants shall inherit the earth. Well, those are all true statements. 
So you mean if I fear the Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dwell in prosperity? Yeah. What do you call heaven? What do you call a new Jerusalem? What do you call your new life in Christ? What do you call the day when you stand before Almighty God and He says, He, he throws out His arms and He welcomes you home and He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. What do you call that? Does not prosperity? That's what I call it. Verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. That word secret means the intimate communication or conversation of God, his plans and his purpose. How many times you wonder, what, oh God, what do you want me to do? What should I do? This is a situation. I'm facing a situation and we get frustrated. God, you're not talking to me. Lord, why don't you show me? Why don't you show me the way? What's, what's hindering? Are there things that hinder our answers? When we pray, when we ask God for wisdom, according to James, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, and God will give it. Is there ever something that can hinder God's response to our prayer? If you look at the whole counsel of God's words, absolutely there is. There are things, you know, of a husband and wife, aren't getting along, God says, uh, until you start treating the wife, your wife right, I'm not listening to your prayers. You know God's word says that? So there's direction that God gives us. There's things that God tells us. Hey, sometimes there's things we can't do, right? We're, we're caught in situations. I can't do nothing about anyone else. All I can do is, is how I react to the situation, right? So I want to react the way God calls me to react. I don't got to be angry. I don't got to. I don't got to react poorly. I just trust in the Lord. Sometimes people leave us. Sometimes people go out the door. Sometimes people hear our cry and stay. Sometimes, no matter how much we pray, a healing a healing doesn't come. God takes people home. But in it all, God wants us wholeheartedly with Him. No matter what. No matter how it comes together. Wholeheartedly. The secret of the Lord, His direction, His guidance will be with you. My eyes, He says, are forever toward the Lord. For He shall pluck my feet out of the net. So the idea is God is central. I'm always looking at Him. Sometimes our first place to go is the lawyer. Sometimes our first place to go is to, to somebody who can give us advice on a, on a matter. David says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. First, Him. After that, wherever He leads you. Wherever He takes you. Turn yourself to me, David says, again asking for deliverance. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. Oh man. That word desolate means lonely and deserted. Anybody ever been there? Turn to me, Lord. I'm, I'm desolate. I'm lonely. I'm deserted. I'm alone. In verse 17, he says, not only is he lonely, he's brokenhearted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. So David often talks about a struggle with depression that he had. 
I don't understand why the church has such a hard time with people being depressed. David was depressed. Read the Psalms. What, what does that mean when he says, the troubles of my heart have enlarged? Well, it means he's depressed. He's broken hearted over the issues he's facing. He has regrets. Look at verse 18. So look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Oh, look at, look at, I, 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 I'm, I'm suffering from dumb choices and lame things I did. That ever happened in David's life? David ever do lame things? Well, it was a little Bathsheba thing. What about, was he father of the year? Well, I don't know, but I do know that one of his sons raped one of his daughters. You think your family's dysfunctional? And then another of his sons murdered the son that raped his sister. And then the son who murdered the son who raped his sister ran away to his, his, his uh, uncle. Was it uncle? I think uncle. And he rises up a rebellion and comes back to try to steal the kingdom from his father. David have struggles? Yeah. He keep his eyes on the Lord? Yeah, that's what he says. Keep my eyes on the Lord. Lord, forgive my sins. Who? What can he do? I did it. I was outside. I should have been at war. I'm outside. I'm looking around. I see this girl. I know who she is. She's married to one of my mighty men. One of the top 30 mighty men of David. You think David didn't know him? David fought with Uriah in a million different fights. They got out of scrapes together. They went and did incredible things because that's the first guys who came to David when he's living in a cave. Bathsheba's not just some person he didn't know who happened to be married to some guy who was a soldier. Go look at the list of the mighty men of David. There he is. Yeah, he knew her. He did it. Is there a way to go back and undo it? I jump in a little time machine and make a different choice? So what's David say to the Lord? Forgive my sins. I've done it. Forgive me. Does God want to forgive? So David asks. And God forgives. And he says, Consider all my enemies, for they are many. The next emotion, look, he had loneliness, brokenheartedness, regrets. Now he's got fear. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Got a lot of people that don't like him. A lot of people that don't want what David wants, that don't want to go where David goes, don't want to be who David wants them to be. So he says, they hate me. So then what's he ask? In the midst of his despair, he says to the Lord, so keep my soul and deliver me. Look, there's times, uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get through. I don't know how to get past whatever the deal is. How did the psalm start? Lord, to you I lift up my soul. The soul was your innermost being, who you really are. The stuff we let everybody see, that's the mask we wear. But the soul, that's our life essence, who we are in the core. David says, I give, I lift that up to you. 
greatest form of worship we can ever have is to give God who we really are. You think he don't know who that is? Man, he knew you before you took your first breath. Knew all your choices, what you were going to do, how you were going to act, what you were going to be. And he loved you anyway. So David says, man, my soul's in your hands, God. It's your hands. That phrase, deliver me, that's where sometimes we get twisted. We think deliver me means carry me through this temporary problem I'm having in my life. David don't want the temporary problem solved. The next three chapters are going to be David saying, Man, all I want to do is be with you, God. All I want to do is be in your house. All I want to do is be in your presence. All I want is you. What do you think he's asking when he says, Deliver me? Man, give me home. Will you? So I'm a screwed up man. Cheated on my wife. My kids are crazy. They're going all different directions. Some of them, they don't even love you, God. I screwed this all up. I'm a king and I'm in charge of this nation and not everybody in this nation is following you. I got enemies everywhere. But you got my soul. You got my soul. You carry me home. Man, bring me to you keep my soul and deliver me let me not be ashamed for i put my trust in you let integrity and uprightness preserve me for i wait for you that phrase again wholeheartedness and let my whole heartedness let it let it come to you let it carry me through my up, uprightness, the fact that I, I want to be who you want me to be, that I'm following you, and in the midst of it all, I'm waiting for you. And then what's he say? But not just me. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of their troubles. Who did that include? That include his kids? That include the people he hurt? That include all of them? Redeem them. Redeem them. Deliver me. Redeem them. Man, that's an important promise, isn't it? An important promise to reach out to God. His deliverance that He would save, that He would do a perfect and an amazing work in our life. And that's ultimately our desire. And, and how is that evidenced in our life? Integrity. Wholeheartedness. Who you are with your lips is who you are in your heart. Is who you are in your action. Is who God knows you to be. Wholehearted. Pretty awesome thing for God to say, Man, David is a man after my own heart.